I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Michael Barry, President of the Foundation for Informed Medical Decision Making and Medical Director of the John D. Stokel Center for Primary Care Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Barry has co-authored a perspective article on patient-centered care and shared decision-making. Dr. Barry, to give us a sense of what patient-centered care means, tell us what care was like before this movement began and how your practice has changed since. Well, for me, if I think back early in my career, and I'm a practicing primary care doc and have done so for close to 30 years now, I would early in my career think about uh, problems like hypertension or high cholesterol or osteoporosis and would often turn to guidelines as a way of building evidence into my practice. And what those guidelines would often tell me is um, there might be a continuum of risk, say, for high blood pressure, and that there'd be a threshold that some experts had decided north of which I might prescribe medicine and south of which I wouldn't. Um, but as I've moved on in my practice over time, I've come to realize that patients who are just north of that threshold are an awful lot like the patients just south of that threshold. And in fact, if I blindly apply that guideline, I may be treating people who don't want treatment and not treating people who do. So now, I tend to involve the patient more in those decisions. Let's take high cholesterol as an example. I would tend to these days look at a risk calculator so I could get some sense that I could communicate to the patient of what their risk of a heart attack might be over the next 10 years, say using the Framingham risk calculator, and a meta-analysis of data on what statin therapy might do to that risk, and um, have a discussion with them about whether my ability prescribing that medication to reduce their risk of a heart attack from, say, 12% to 9% is worthwhile in the face of the hassles, risks, and side effects of, of uh, the medication. And uh, it's, it's interesting, uh, people with the very same absolute benefit in terms of risk reduction will see that trade-off very differently. Some will want to be treated and some won't. So it's applying the evidence, but taking the patient perspective into account. And that's my own personal evolution here. One type of decision that you see as amenable to shared decision-making has to do with PSA testing and then potentially the treatment of early-stage prostate cancer. Can you walk us through a set of decisions about that, how you talk to one of your own patients? I'll try my best. And this is an interesting area for me because I've worked in uh, prostate cancer screening and treatment for quite a long time in my uh, research life. And um, two new large trials came out in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, recently. And I think many of us in the field hoped that those trials, one done in the United States and one in Europe, would settle the question. In other words, show so much benefit that we could uh, skip the shared decision-making and get right to testing everyone because the benefits so far outweighed the risks, or that we'd see no benefit so that we could skip the Sturm and Drang and just not screen. And you're well aware of the controversy. It seems that PSA testing is destined to be one of those relatively close calls where different people can make different decisions. So what I tend to walk through with patients is first the potential benefit. And the two trials really conflicted. The US trial didn't show a benefit in terms of reducing prostate cancer mortality. There are some potential reasons for that that I'll cover. The European trial showed a benefit that was statistically significant 
but at least to my eye, small. Um, about seven fewer prostate cancer deaths per 10,000 men screened per 10 years. I hesitate saying small because that's always in the eye of the beholder and something important to remember whether you're thinking about clinicians or patients. What does that mean to a person over their lifetime? Uh, first, we're not sure how much benefit is there based on the research we have to date. But it's unlikely men can reduce their lifetime risk of dying of prostate cancer beyond, say, from 3 to 100 uh, to about 2 to 100. That would be about a one-third reduction, but those are really the absolute numbers we're talking about. That, of course, doesn't mean a 1% shot at immortality. Uh, something will get us all. Mortality is still 100%. But maybe we'd see a benefit uh, that big, uh, although we're not sure about it. On the other hand, uh, there are downsides to PSA screening, and patients often don't understand it's a simple blood test. Why not do it if there's even a possibility of benefit? I usually start with talking about the fact that's most counterintuitive, that if a man picks to be regularly screened with a PSA test, he's going to substantially increase his risk of getting prostate cancer. Now, it's really being diagnosed with prostate cancer because the test isn't biologically causing the cancer, but I worry we've soft-pedaled that distinction. And um, I think the fact that the lifetime risk of getting prostate cancer has gone from about 8 in 100 before the PSA test was available to about 16 in 100 now is really important for men to know. Sometimes I think if there were a vegetable that doubled the risk of getting prostate cancer, no one would eat it. But in some ways, the PSA test is that vegetable. Hopefully, for having that higher risk of getting prostate cancer by being screened, we'll see a reduction in mortality, but it's a real risk. Uh, a, a diagnosis of prostate cancer isn't a gift, as one of my colleagues has said. Now, if there were no downside to treating prostate cancer, maybe that uh, higher risk of getting prostate cancer wouldn't matter. But in fact, the treatments involved have substantial side effects, including uh, a risk of uh, incontinence, trouble controlling urination, of sexual dysfunction, and even of bowel injury in some cases. And for some of the treatments, a small but finite risk of death. And I'll go through that uh, trade-off with men. And I'm quite impressed that some men, based on their values, will want to take that small and uncertain chance of reducing their risk of dying of prostate cancer, despite the substantial side effects, other men won't. And, and I'm reluctant to rely on panels of experts, whether specialists, uh, primary care physicians, public health experts, to substitute their judgment for patients. You say in your article that clinicians need to ask patients what matters to you as well as what's the matter. How big a change in thinking does that take? Well, for me, it took quite a bit of thinking. And um, it's so easy, particularly in the busy world of clinical medicine, to assume that other people think like you in terms of what you value and what you would want. Um, my own little epiphany with this came with uh, my own decision about colorectal cancer screening. Uh, I was a primary care doctor, and I decided to get a colonoscopy at age 50. An acquaintance of mine, who I know quite well, uh, faced the same decision, 
And in fact, um, I had a small part in a decision aid uh, where I was a proponent of getting screened uh, with colonoscopy. I explained my decision. But other people in that program uh, described the reasons that they picked other strategies for colorectal cancer screening. For example, fecal cult blood testing. Now for me, it seems such an easy decision. I didn't see colonoscopy as very invasive. I was aware of the small but finite risk of a perforation. The idea of getting it out of the way for 10 years or so, if nothing I, uh, I was found was really attractive to me. And when my acquaintance saw that program, including my testimony about colonoscopy, and decided I'll have what he's having, someone else, um, I really scratched my head about it. And as we talked it through, what I came to realize is that, you know, I'm a physician who's hung around academic medical centers for 30 years or so. I tend not to think of things as invasive unless we're removing a substantial part of the brain or something like that. And, um, and in fact, what seemed non-invasive to me seemed quite invasive to this person. And it wasn't that they were misconceiving it. It's that they just felt different than me about how invasive this procedure was. And they were willing to sacrifice potentially some sensitivity, although research doesn't tell us well how much, um, for a less invasive approach. We just had different ways of looking at the same question. And I think um, that lesson and others have taught me that, boy, different people have different feelings and, and values, and that I should not jump to thinking they, they make the same decisions I would. That story points up the fact that in order to participate in decisions about their own care, patients have to have high quality information and have to be educated. How difficult is that, ensuring that they are educated? Well, I think that's a real challenge. and. Uh, it's highlighted by a, um, another study that our um, foundation funded in collaboration with the University of Michigan several years ago. It's called the Decision Study, and I think it's the first epidemiologic study of, of medical decisions in the United States. We looked for people who had made decisions about uh, major surgical procedures, things like uh, back surgery, uh, medication decisions like the high cholesterol decision, or screening decisions like the PSA decisions. We've become very interested in how you measure the quality of decisions when there's more than one reasonable thing to do. Much of our quality measurement is about uh, delivering proven effective care when there's one right thing to do, but a lot of medicine, uh, there are more than one way to skin the cat, if you will. So um, in the decision survey, we looked for adults over 40 who had made a decision in one of these areas in the last two years, and we asked them some knowledge questions that prior patients and clinical experts thought were key before people made a decision to go under the knife or commit themselves to a medicine, often for the rest of their lives, or to take a screening test that can get you on a slippery slope, like the PSA test. And we were really amazed to find how little knowledge people had about decisions that they themselves had made recently uh, and let us know that there was a lot to be done despite the availability of information on the internet and despite what we try to do to educate them in clinical practice. It turns out there are ways we can bring patients up to speed efficiently at um, their options, their pros and cons of those options, and the likely outcomes. Uh, but we have to work at it. The advantage we have is in that same decision survey, we found that patients thought their clinicians were really the trusted source for that information. And although many will go to the internet to look up information, 
particularly if we don't give it to them, they'd really like to get it from us. So the fact that the patients really trust us to give them good information, uh, by and large, is an opportunity that we need to, ta- need to take advantage of. You mentioned the use of patient decision aids. Have, have you used them, and can you describe one? Well, I do, and I should say that our foundation uh, produces uh, patient decision aids with a commercial partner, Health Dialogue, but there are many other people who produce patient decision aids. The Ottawa Hospital Research Institute actually has an A to Z inventory of decision aids available for different uh, problems, so uh, listeners could, could Google and find out more about available decision aids. Um, Our foundation actually funds a network of demonstration sites around the country that are trying to figure out how do we build a shared decision-making approach supported by decision aids into the workflow of day-to-day practice, whether in primary care or specialty care. Uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, where I work, is one of those demonstration sites. So in primary care, we can electronically prescribe decision aids much as we electronically prescribe medicines. And there is an information pharmacy, if you will, where that prescription can be filled either in person or through the mail uh, to try to get information to people efficiently. So I prescribe those decision aids, and for example, there's a decision aid about the PSA screening decision that I'll use with patients uh, crossing that 50th birthday um, when uh, many recommend that's the time to at least initiate the discussion about screening. You say in your article that studies show that using these decision aids often results in patients deciding to forego a screening test or an operation. Have you seen that kind of reduced demand for services in your practice? Well, I think first I'll say the real reason to do this is to make sure that people are making good decisions. There is a, uh, just as there are meta-analyses of trials of uh, therapies and diagnostic tests, there are meta-analyses of trials of using decision aids to support a shared decision-making process. So in the last update through the Cochrane Library, um, there were 86 randomized trials of using decision aids supporting a shared decision-making process. So those 86 randomized trials uh, show that we can help uh, reduce that knowledge gap we found in the decision survey give people more realistic risk expectations. We can activate them to participate more in their medical decisions and reduce the conflict about their decisions. And I think that's the real reason to use decision aids to support shared decision making. It puts the informed in informed consent, if you will. Now, it turns out that um, in the Cochrane uh, review, there were 11 trials, for example, that looked at major surgical procedures, and collectively, those suggested that there was about a 20% reduction in those procedures when patients were fully informed, suggesting they're a little bit more conservative than their doctors uh, about those procedures. But one really interesting finding was that when the same decision aid, one developed by our foundation, was used in the United States, and this was around the choice of surgical treatment for benign prostate enlargement, that in fact the rate went down in the United States, but when the same decision aid was used in the United Kingdom, where the baseline rate was very much lower than the United States, the rate actually went up. This kind of finding, which is early, makes me excited to think that maybe this kind of approach is a tool to dealing with the unwanted practice variation that's been so well documented in sources like the Dartmouth Atlas. 
but we need a lot more uh, study to nail that down. I should also say that in um, trials of decision aids for PSA screening, there's been about a 15% reduction in decisions to do PSA screening. So maybe this is a tool uh, to deal with some of the overdiagnosis and overtreatment that is pretty common in American medicine from my perspective. But the real reason to do it is to make sure that people are making good decisions. And I think in some cases where therapies are being underutilized, we might see increases in uptake. So bringing these uh, tools into common use is going to require a cultural shift. How much of that is within the control of the individual physician, and how much of it is actually a system change? Well, I really think it starts with the individual physician in that we've got to have an open mind that people think differently than we do about many of these choices they face in healthcare. Again, back to my colonoscopy decision, it would be really tempting perhaps for me to think that someone who made a different decision would be wrong. And in fact, it's just different values and perspectives. And having an open mind about inviting those uh, values and preferences into the decision is a really important starting place. So I worry that nothing would be more tragic than getting informed, activated patients who come into a doctor's office or hospital and hit a brick wall because we don't have the receptiveness to their participation that we need to have. So we need to work on both informing and activating patients, but also on a health system and individual clinicians who are receptive to that patient input. Now, making it easy to do the right thing uh, requires system fixes. And as I think about um, the world of primary care, for example, and what we do with patients face-to-face, I hear many of my colleagues, and, and I'm sympathetic to the argument that we just don't have time. Um, a lot of reimbursement is set up to do more things rather than to talk to people about whether doing something is the right thing. And if we could change incentives to reward good decision quality, particularly as we learn how to measure it more effectively, rather than simply more is better, I think that is the environment that would make it easy to do the right thing. If I think about uh, my day-to-day clinical practice in primary care and what I do face-to-face, I worry I sometimes spend too much time with uh, gratuitous parts of the physical exam, maybe listening to the lungs and someone with no pulmonary complaints or perhaps my favorite example, the 11-item review of systems. I've been unable to find randomized trials that suggest that does more good than harm, and yet a significant part of reimbursement in primary care is triggered around doing that 11-item review of systems. I'd view it as more uh, tradition-based than evidence-based medicine. Now we've got an approach with 86 randomized trials supporting a shared decision-making approach couldn't we shift reimbursement to support shared decision-making rather than some of that tradition-based medicine uh, that doesn't have the same evidence base? So I'd love to see systems changes that made it easy to free up the time for clinicians and patients to work together on getting to um, the right decision uh, before we make sure we execute uh, delivering on that decision well. In another Perspective article, David Rubin and Mary Tinetti discuss what they call goal-oriented care, focusing on patients' goals for symptom relief and functional status, and then tailoring treatment accordingly. Does that mesh well with your uh, concept of shared decision-making? Well, from my perspective, it sure does. And uh, I was really uh, excited to read that article. Dr. Tanetti and I were colleagues together uh, training back in, in Rochester, New York, uh, many uh, moons ago. But effectively, 
this issue of asking what matters to people is a thread in, in both their article and in our article, and I think that really is the key common denominator here. In many ways, we focus on uh, asking people what matters uh, to them when they're faced with, say, a, a decision about screening or medication or um, uh, surgical treatment, but in fact, they generalize this to um, thinking about what about if people have multiple competing priorities, multiple chronic conditions, or even multiple choices within one chronic condition, say a diabetic who's faced with choices about managing their uh, glucose, their cholesterol, whether to take aspirin, whether to stop smoking. It's just not practical to do everything at once, and using a shared decision-making approach to help prioritize where you start, you can move on once you've conquered your, your uh, first goals, uh, and for the many people with multiple chronic conditions, using this kind of approach to prioritize among managing them, what really matters to people. So, for example, when I think about um, uh, a man who might come in with bothersome lower urinary tract symptoms, coming back to the um, urologic examples, you know, that person might be thinking, um, boy, my symptoms are really bothering me. I'd love to get some relief. Or they might be thinking, I'm really worried about prostate cancer. The symptoms I can live with, I don't want any treatment, I want some reassurance on that score. Again, asking what matters, what their goals are, I think is a common denominator between the two approaches. I hope those authors agree. Underlying everything you say is, is the issue of coordinated and integrated care. Do you think that this, what you've been describing is a formula that can be used in the broader healthcare system? Well, I would hope so. and. Um, we need to work on that challenge. Um, let's think about end-of-life care. I might, in my primary care practice, have a discussion with a patient about their goals for end-of-life care, what they would want, what they wouldn't want. But if uh, then a, uh, a patient comes into a hospital in an emergent situation and no one knows those goals in that situation, we're at risk of not respecting what they need and want. So better communication about um, uh, what a person's goals are and our need to honor them across that system, I think is really important. The electronic medical record is certainly one way uh, uh, to attack that problem, and I think we're seeing progress, but again, a lot more work to do. Uh, it would be a shame to, um, again, have a great discussion with a patient about goals and then having someone who hadn't been part of that discussion take the uh, treatment off in another direction just because of an accident of timing. Thank you, Dr. Barry. You're welcome. Thanks.